1: The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense.
0: Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room Podcast. I'm Ron Granary, Professor of History at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and Podcast Editor of the War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. From May 9th to 11th, 2023, the U.S. Army War College will host the second annual Strategic Land Power Symposium at the Army Heritage and Education Center here in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Notable guest speakers will include the Commander of U.S. Army Pacific, the Chief of the National Guard Bureau, and the Commander of Third Corps. Bringing together students, scholars, and practitioners, the symposium aims to advance the concepts surrounding the role of strategic land power in cooperation, competition, integrated deterrence, and joint all-domain operations by presenting original research to senior leaders about how land power can help achieve future national objectives. As part of the symposium, the U.S. Army War College's Strategic Land Power Integrated Research Project, or IRP, has gathered 12 members of the U.S. Army War College Class of 2023 to address aspects of the future role of strategic land power as part of their Master's in Strategic Studies degree research requirement. They will make presentations on a wide range of topics, and to amplify their work, A Better piece has organized multiple podcast sessions with those students to discuss their projects, their relationship to the Strategic Landpower Symposium, and possible implications for the future of U.S. security policy. This is the third of those sessions, and today's topic is protection, broadly conceived with Lieutenant Colonel Jennifer Hunt, Lieutenant Colonel Matt Inglis, and Lieutenant Colonel Lillian Woodington. Lieutenant Colonel Jennifer Hunt is the Deputy G-6 for the Florida Army National Guard. She formerly commanded the 146th Expeditionary Signal Battalion, where she deployed in support of Operation Enduring Freedom and Operation Spartan Shield from March 2020 to January 2021. Lieutenant Colonel Matthew Inglis is an Air Defense Artillery Officer. After graduating from the U.S. Army War College this spring, he will serve as the G-357 for the FIRE's Center of Excellence in support of the training, modernization, and advancement of field artillery and air defense artillery efforts. And finally, Lieutenant Colonel Lillian Woodington is a U.S. Army active duty military police officer and resident student here at the U.S. Army War College. Her previous assignment was as Battalion Commander in the 1st Cavalry Division, and she is returning to Fort Hood, Texas this summer as the 3rd Armored Corps Provost Marshal. So we had all better be on our best behavior. Welcome to A Better Peace, colleagues. So I wanted to give each of you a chance to summarize your research projects before we get into the conversation. And um, because I am at heart unimaginative, I've decided simply to go in alphabetical order um, for all of you. So I was going to ask you, Jennifer Hunt, if you would like to go first.
2: Sure. Good morning, Ron. Good morning, team. Uh, Again, my name is Jennifer Hunt, and my research really centered on protection gaps in the cyber domain, uh, specifically concerning the defense of state and local government and critical infrastructure from cyber attacks. So, you know, I, I think it's no secret that the People's Republic of China, Russia, and Iran are all increasingly using the cyber domain to launch attacks in the gray zone against U.S. national interest, and to really to compete below the threshold of war. Um, these efforts by the PRC and other state and non-state actors are progressively targeting enemies outside the Department of Defense, including U.S., federal, state, tribal, and territorial governments, private companies, um, and critical infrastructure sectors located in the states. And while our national strategic guidance, response plans, and the creation of U.S. Cybercom have all improved our ability to respond to cyber attacks at the federal level, there really remains a capability gap regarding the protection of state and local governments and critical infrastructure at the state level. Um, My paper more or less assessed how the National Guard specifically, is uniquely positioned to fill cyber capability gaps in the homeland's defense and serve as the Department of Defense's lead in all state and local related cyber attacks. My study really evaluated the current domestic cyber threat, uh, the history and capabilities of the current DOD cyber forces, national response efforts, the National Guard as a force enabler, um, and it took a look at the personnel training and doctrine changes that really are required to take place in order to use the National Guard as the lead agency in all cyber homeland defense efforts. The key findings that I came across, some would be no surprise to most, is that cyber attacks against the state and local government, and specifically critical infrastructure, are are on the rise. I think in 2022, there were over 2,000 cyber attacks reported to the FBI, and over 36% of those impacted critical infrastructure. Also, in a 2022 uh, report that Microsoft Digital Defense did, they essentially claim that cyber attacks targeting critical infrastructure worldwide jumped from twenty percent of all nation-state attacks to forty percent. One of the other findings is that Cybercom, um, with the one hundred and thirty-three cyber mission force teams that they have, while they have an enormous amount of talent, they really lack the the manning required, as well as flexible authorities to support offensive and defensive cyberspace operations, while simultaneously defending strategic assets here at the homeland, and then leaning forward and defending critical infrastructure at the state and local level, as required or laid out in kind of the National Cyber Incident Response Plan, as well as the 2018 cybersecurity strategy. This is really apparent when we look at entering into large-scale combat operations, where we as the U.S. may have to defend multiple fronts, including the homeland, and where China might take that opportunity to really perform attacks against the homeland. Some of the other um, findings were essentially that the national cyber frameworks that we have out there currently, like the National Cyber Incident Response Plan, they're all very federal centric and their approach doesn't integrate state and local governor's authorities and they really gloss over the capabilities and response roles that the DOD has, as well as the National Guard Cyber Forces. And then really, lastly, the biggest thing that I pulled out of this is that the National Guard's proximity and their relationships, their existing relationships with state and local government, um, with and also with critical infrastructure in their state, as well as their familiarity and integration with the Federal Emergency Management um, Agency and the National Response Framework, which we're very familiar with with regards to working on state disasters. Um, and their flexibility in both manning and authorizations really make them the ideal a DOD first responder for all state and local cyber attacks. And it's something that I think we need to take advantage of in the
0: future. Great. Thanks, Jennifer. That's a, that's a, that's a great start. A lot of good questions will we'll come from that, and we'll get back to that in the discussion. Um, so now to you, Matt Inglis.
1: Uh, so uh, my paper really focuses on a kind of a new element associated and adopted by the Army, which is the competition continuum. And specifically how for air and missile defense forces, the larger strategic capabilities, our doctrine and organization is ill-prepared to facilitate the transition between those strategic contexts. Um, during my research and really kind of one of the things I found is for air and missile defense forces, we kind of overlook our importance to our ability to support uh, the joint forces deterrence posture And then how that conflicts and kind of takes away from our ability to employ deception efforts in order to increase the survivability. So um, part of my key findings, of course, is the ADA doctrine and the ADA organization doesn't really capture this nuanced capability uh, or this nuanced uh, element that should be. So the Army states for a competition uh, to be successful in that we want to deter enemy action. Then that's a key thing in crisis, uh, specifically a military crisis. Success is you know to de-escalate those tensions and return to a level of competition from some point of strategic advantage. And then even if we transition to armed conflict at the you know the failure of deterrence, um, we want to defeat the enemy forces and then return to a posture of credible deterrence. And I think air missile defense uh, forces have a key element within that, specifically with their perception as a highly escalatory, uh, element, you know, the introduction of a, a Patriot system into Ukraine is viewed very highly escalatory, which could, depending on when it's employed, increase, uh, tensions in the region instead of the de-escalation. So some of the findings I have is, um, our organizations lack, uh, the ability to really kind of understand how we could support uh, deterrence, and then also how do we assure our allies during those lower strategic. We saw in the Middle East uh, when Saudi Arabia was attacked in 2019, our efforts to assure Saudi Arabia and really all the Gulf Cooperation Council partners uh, was a huge draw on the air Missile Defense Forces that were just not organized to support In crisis, really, we should be preparing for ability to deceive the enemy, uh, but we lack the equipment and the skills to employ that. The the uh, oh no the and the just the last piece is as we see in Ukraine and uh, in the Azerbaijan Armenia conflict, uh, continuous observation, specifically uh, through UAS or satellite imaging. There's an opportunity if we utilize that to promote overt deterrence posture, but also when armed conflict happens, quickly transition and utilize that to deceive the enemy and ideally get some sort of advantage that supports armed conflict.
0: Great. Thank you, Matt. That's, that's once again, very interesting. And, and uh, I I think about this problem, right, is that it's, it's hard to hide a massive uh, Patriot battery. um, And, or, and so if you move it from one place to another, people are going to notice, and we'll come back, we'll come back to that in the, in the, in the conversation. Thanks a lot, Matt. Uh, Lily Woodington. So uh,
3: in my paper, I I talk more about protection writ large, um, kind of rather than uh, going into the specific focus areas that that Jennifer and Matt did. Um, I argue generally that the joint force needs to uh, better adapt to the Evolving multi-domain environment and prepare for large-scale combat operations by changing our thinking about protection. We need to think about protection as a matter of risk and risk management um, in order to reinforce uh, the integrated deterrence that Matt brought up, um, and and also to ensure that we can enable victory and survival in conflict. So we understand um, by looking at our national security strategy that you know protection is essential to integrated deterrence, and we must try to remain in a state of competition with our adversaries. And we can effectively deter them by showing that we can sufficiently protect our critical assets and capabilities uh, by using active and passive measures, and that will adjust our and the enemy's risk calculus uh, so that hopefully we can never get to conflict. conflict and we need to be prepared. So the, the focus of my paper is that across a joint force, there's multiple gaps in protection um, from a concept of understanding, training, and resourcing that challenge commanders' capability to, to manage risk and assess it effectively. We we generally do a good job of understanding protection in a non-war fighting function capacity, such as our day-to-day garrison operations, anti-terrorism force protection, but we don't uh, go to war every day. and We lack that understanding of what protection will look like in great power competition and large-scale combat operations. Um, Just from my own experience, I I know that it's often an afterthought and not fully integrated into planning and operations. Uh, So within my paper, I I used uh, some findings from vignettes uh, related to uh, the current Ukraine-Russia war, and also from some protection-related findings from a a war game of a hypothetical Chinese invasion of Taiwan. And I came up with four findings and made some recommendations, the first being that we lack joint standardized protection doctrine. Uh, The army has a a pretty good understanding of protection uh, as a land power, uh, the lead in land power. But if we can't standardize that across the joint force and with the other services and our allies and partners, uh, we're going to find ourselves having a lot of challenge as we try to to um, integrate protection in large scale combat operations. Uh, We must come up with a, a joint concept for protection in order to to have that common understanding across the, the joint force and our allies and partners, um, reconciling it uh, through all the services and, and working together to achieve that unity, unity of effort um, to fully integrate. Now, the second finding I came up with uh, was basically the complexity of all the layered threats across multiple domains and large scale combat operations makes it challenging for commanders to um, Un- truly issue clear risk guidance to subordinates and integrate uh, protection prioritization into decision-making. You can't protect everything all the time everywhere. And, and that's a challenge. And so commanders have to understand how they can better surge windows of protection and layer effects in time and space uh, to protect effectively in a contested environment. Um, this is predicated by understanding how to, prioritize those capabilities that we need to protect and when, um, and figure out how much risk we're willing to assume and prepare to assume that risk. There's going to be a lot of difficult choices that come from those decisions. And commanders need to be prepared to make those difficult choices. My third finding, um, before I get to the final one, is that um, we generally have inadequate protection and risk management training, um, all the way from the, the soldier level up to our senior leaders and strategic leaders. Um, in there, I discuss in my paper I discuss how we need some additional training across the joint force to better understand risk, so that we can integrate protection into all of our planning and operations. It's crucial that everyone have an understanding of it, especially with. Um, um, all domain threats uh, that could isolate forces in a in a large scale combat operations environment with limited protection resources. And finally, uh, the fourth finding I came up with was that as we as we start to modernize uh, our force, we end up having challenges with our force structure and resulting in insufficient protection capabilities uh, to protect in large-scale combat operations. We can leverage this by by using innovation and technology to help balance that risk and protection requirements um, to overcome these capability gaps. Uh, I I very briefly talk about how we can use remote autonomous systems to mitigate some of the loss of force protection structure and also minimize our personnel and sustainment requirement footprints uh, in in a combat zone. Also, we can integrate uh, artificial intelligence as it continues to advance into how we threat model forecasts using prioritization tools to help commanders make decisions more rapidly in an evolving environment, um, using predictive analysis uh, to anticipate and streamline those decision-making processes.
0: All right. Well, thank you, Lily. Thank you. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you, Matt. Now, I listened to all three of your presentations and by looking at your work, right, we, 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 we brought you together because you, you each deal with one as- different aspects of protection. And there's something else that struck me listening to the three of you, which is the paradox of protection is how do you prepare for a conflict that you say you don't want? And so this is where you get into the issue of, of what exactly is a defensive weapon um, and what exactly is a defensive action. And, and so I want to bend this question for each of you. So, Jennifer, for you, right, you you raise this excellent point, right, that the Army uh, perhaps and that the DOD may be excessively focused on uh, federal threats. And you know, so who's taking care of things closer to home? And The National Guard makes a lot of sense to do that. But of course, the United States, United States society is allergic to the idea of military actions, preparations appearing to be too close to civilian government in some ways. And so we we rely on the National Guard to, to come to the rescue and when there is an emergency um, uh, and, that's, and then people don't worry so much. But how do we deal with the idea for the National Guard to be deeply involved in planning for protection of critical infrastructure? Um, while also not running up against either legal or, let's say, cultural barriers against the presence of uh, military folks in local elected government?
2: Right. So that's a great question. But I, I actually believe that the National Guard is the ideal candidate for this because they already have a relationship in the community. They're already a trusted entity of government. And while, yes, we are part of the DOD construct, the population of that state that they are employed in don't see us that way. I know it sounds like a strange idea or concept, but they're so used to uh, to seeing us, you know, deployed or mobilized in a manner of help that they naturally just kind of assume that we're always there to help. And you'd be so surprised. That's one of the reasons that I opted to do the research on this particular topic. How many government, you know, state and local government agencies as well as private Um, companies have reached out to the National Guard for assistance with defending their networks. Um, They really are, and especially, you know, since the election uh, debacle that took place several years ago, um, the states are very, very um, concerned about ensuring that they have a validated process, and they see the National Guard as a mechanism to do that. So, I think where the active component is not necessarily, you know, they're seen in a different light, not in a in a poor light, but they're not seen as a part of that local community. It really is what makes the guard the ideal uh, component for that.
0: And and to follow up on that is, do you feel as though uh, do you feel as though the guard receives enough equipment, training, support from Big Army um, to act as a, essentially to act as a conduit for the newest materials the newest equipment the newest approaches uh you know that we're not talking about the guards not a trojan horse here but the guard is a kind of is a is a conduit for stuff that has to come from someplace else and do you feel as though the the big army and the and the dod um, is sufficiently attuned to the usefulness of the of the guard or is this something that after after they come and hear your presentation at the symposium they'll understand
2: so a simple answer to that question is no. I, I, don't, <laughs> think, I don't think that right now uh, the DOD or the Army specifically sees the Guard as the solution to the problem. But I think that their minds are starting to change towards that because the governors are really starting to reach out. I think you know resources are, are constantly constrained. Uh, we see that. And I think that the Guard is a great way to serve as a force multiplier to both the Army as well as Cybercom if done right. But part of the you know the research that I had or one of the findings in my paper is that if you look across all 54 states and territories, the cyber mission force that is located there differs very widely between training, between force structure, manning. Um, so I think it's important that if, if the Guard is going to be utilized in this way, that it is standardized across all 54 mm-hmm. states and territories. One, so both Cybercom as well as the Army has visibility of those resources and knows exactly how they can be employed. But two, also because they can be utilized in a Title X response, if necessary, in large-scale combat operations. Right. Um, I essentially argue that what we need to do is create joint cyber CSTs at the state level um, made up of active duty Title 32 AGR personnel, possibly and in, in our Air National Guard. Um, and they essentially perform the same that the weapons of mass destruction CSTs do. They have an annual validation but they're they're constantly building those partnerships with the with the critical infrastructure sector on the ground as well as the local government because part of the response effort both the defense and response to cyber attack is that you have an understanding a solid understanding of what the norm looks like on a particular network that you have agreements in place well in advance of any you know action on the network itself uh, memorandums of agreement, legal authorities—all of those are laid out in advance, so that when you can come in and respond, you can do it rapidly in real time, and minimize the amount of time that that particular critical uh, service is down or degraded. So I think that that again is one of the reasons why the National Guard should be uh, looked at as a as not only a, a force multiplier for the active component and all of DOD, but really as a homeland defense and extension of DHS. You would say. Uh, Because, you know, if we, again, if we enter into a large-scale combat operation, if I was the PRC, the first thing I would do would would be degrade capabilities at home. So you would erode confidence of the civilian population in the government. You could degrade or disrupt the ability for us to push forces forward, Um, you know, take out communications. I mean, I would really strike fear in the hearts of the American population. And one way to do that is by taking out critical infrastructure, such as 5G capability, um, sure. so that's just my
0: thoughts on that. That's right. That's legit. And so CST is that, is that crisis support team or combat support team? Civil support team. <laughs> Civil support team. See, no. that's right for our for our audience out there. Thanks so much, Jennifer. Well, and Matt, um, you know, a flip side of this is, and, and you alluded to this, and we talked about it, right? Is that how do you how do you both deter conflict by by having the equipment in place that will let an adversary know that they shouldn't try something because the equipment is in place to stop it? How do you deter while also assuring your allies? So sometimes you assure your allies by. By, by bringing the equipment and with great uh, fanfare, say, look what we've brought to protect you. You are protected. You are assured. Um, but in a way that doesn't appear to be uh, escalatory or threatening or challenging. We know how the, we know how the Chinese felt about uh, theater, high altitude area defense in South Korea. We know how the Russians felt about um, uh, anti or miss- ballistic missile defense in Eastern Europe. So how how do we do this? How do we deter, assure, and not escalate?
1: So yeah, it's kind of a, really a challenge for the Army and the Air Missile Defense Forces for the last 20 years. Uh, the Middle East is by far the best example. We've had uh, U.S. has maintained Air Missile Defense Forces uh, since 2008 uh, throughout the Gulf Cooperation Council uh, as they those countries gain their own capability. So really... Being present uh, is kind of a key thing before escalation. So a sustained presence through either military engagement, exercises, or at least what Air Missile Defense Forces, the most deployed rotational forces in the Army is constant rotational deployments to support uh, those partners. If we are constantly there during competition phase or the competition context, then that should not be escalatory. The introduction of new capabilities once tensions rise, that becomes challenging. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. The other capability uh, that the U.S. has done is really through our foreign military sales is get these partner nations to build or to buy similar capability. Uh, last time I looked, I think by 2030 in the Middle East, 90% of the exquisite systems Patriot Thad. In the Middle East, will belong to foreign nations. So really, we could assure our allies by how can they effectively employ their systems to defend their own capability with us. And then when we need, how do we integrate our capabilities in support of each other? So during competition and maybe even crisis, if we balance with us physically being there to defend and support, Versus how do we make sure and support their ability to defend and support themselves? We really kind of leverage that portion. The challenge is when we have Indopaycom, Ucom, Centcom, all polling for this same niche capability, there is a, a resourcing that the Army struggles with. How do we prioritize those efforts?
0: Right. Which we, and we, we're seeing this happen right now with uh, both training and supplying, say, the Ukrainians with appropriate uh, missile defense and other forms of defense.
1: Absolutely. No. Not necessarily providing our capability to support Ukraine, but how do we right. support their ability to effectively defend themselves?
0: Right. Right. There's a challenge. All right. Thanks, Matt. And so, Lily, this goes back to the training issue that you brought up in your, in, among the, 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 your key findings right your interesting one about how do we get uh how do we get people prepared for def- for protection at a higher level than they're going to be doing in their routine life and I think about this in your experience both working on this project but also your experience as a military uh, in military police right how do we you know there's there's defending a base, uh, at garrison duty in the United States. There's, there's protection at a base that is stationed overseas in peacetime. And then there's protection of a base that is engaged in active combat. And how do we, how do we train people for that? And how do we train people for, uh, to, to, to be able to sort of move, move along the competition continuum? Or do we, cause I, I, I can't, I can't imagine that we just sort of figure you'll figure it out when people are shooting at you, you have to be on guard rather than when you're just directing traffic.
3: Yeah, no, that's a great question, Ron, and and I wish I knew the answer. <laughs> um, but you know, and that's one of the things that inspired me to to, to write this paper was, right. you know, I've I've served at a theater army level and worked with our joint sister services and with the COCOM, and when my own partners within the protection realm don't fully understand it, we have a we have a pretty big problem. And sure. and then trying to so that we have to get to the, you know, to the elementary level before we can get to the graduate level of having to do this for real. So, um, so as far as how to do that, I, I think the the biggest point I was trying to make through throughout my paper was that are high. It has to come from the top down, not just the bottom up, because um, I think the soldiers on the ground and the, the commanders on the ground understand that they have to protect their forces, uh, but they have to be resourced and supported by at the strategic level and at the senior leader level to make sure that they can do that. Um, so so some of the things that we can do is, you know, first of all, to ensure that our strategic level leaders understand protection, whether that's more training, whether that's just uh thinking about it differently and understanding that it, it's a direct part of risk management and and you know, these big decisions that they'll have to make that are gonna, you know, result in how do we balance protecting the force versus protecting the mission? if you protect the mission you're going to you're, to, to win you're going to lose a lot of lives and, and equipment potentially versus if you just protect the people and the equipment and your critical capabilities you may you may not win um, you may not achieve victory because then you know you have to so you have to find that delicate balance I think a way, Um, Especially at the at the COCOM, uh, the combatant commander level and theater army level is to make sure it's integrated into our strategies from the top down. And then um, including our uh, theater campaign plans, theater campaign support plans, and then make sure that that information um, gets disseminated down to those commanders and that subordinate commanders are resourced properly. To with with money to attend training to achieve uh, specialties, um, and then be able to 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 share that information with their troops. Uh, another big piece of this is integrating it into our security cooperation with our allies and partners. Uh, a lot of the security cooperation uh programs aren't necessarily focused on protection there there's a lot focused on um air defense as matt has been discussing, but not to the levels which is you know it's the, the challenge that he's talking about and we know that that air defense air and missile defense is is probably a very decisive part of our capability to protect in large scale combat operations but we can't lose focus on those those other things attacks from ground forces uh, the cyber threat um and and how we can use what we have on hand now um in order to to better protect ourselves so um it's not just military police or engineers or um uh, explosive ordnance disposal uh it, it it goes into a broader thing he talked uh, about deception operations um some critical findings from the the vignettes that I looked at talked about how forces disperse which is a a, a te- tactic technique and procedure that the, that our subordinate commanders have to understand and how they do that. And then commanders also have to understand that during those operations where they're doing that, they're going to assume risk and not be able to communicate um, when you're trying to limit your, um, you know, limit your presence on the electromagnetic spectrum. So, so it, it really comes down to Making sure that training is, and the importance of it, is integrated into the strategies at the highest level that our subordinate commanders are effectively resourced to do the training, that we integrate it with our allies and partners, and that we also integrate it into our training exercises. Often in our training exercises, it's an afterthought. Um, we 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 kind of hand wave it, uh, much like we do a lot of logistics and sustainment operations. But if we don't practice uh, what we need to do in combat uh, now, uh, we're not going to be able to do it effectively, even without the the right resources. Yeah, right.
0: Matt, you wanted to jump
1: in on there. Go ahead. Yeah, just uh, really kind of Lily hi- highlighted. You know, the the new FM 30 talks about large scale combat operations, but I fear if we don't take and understand protection uh, fully, we're doing ourselves a disservice because the time it takes to disperse those forces, the challenges associated when a ballistic missile does land on a runway, and our ability to generate combat power after that—you know, the combat command level, the theater army level—these are things that are going to limit our ability to execute armed conflict that we don't really exercise at. So, I feel like. If everything works, hey, this multi-domain operation is going to go great. But if we are influenced by cyber operations beforehand, hey, how do we operate degraded but still trying to gain and sustain these critical advantages? And protection is going to be a key thing that it's going to be much, much harder to do it if we don't plan for it up front.
0: Right. I mean, this is, this of course, is, a, is an excellent observation overall. And we are just, we are almost out of time, but I wanted to ask all three of you uh, a question about how working on this particular project in the integrated research project, right? Everybody's got to do a research project at the War College, right? So let the world know that. And you chose to do it, to do yours within this uh, integrated research project. But um, what led you to do this? And how has it affected both your understanding of the topic that you chose, but also how has it affected your, your larger academic experience here at the War College? I want to start with you, Jennifer Hunt.
2: So I would say as a National Guard signal officer, you know, I've had really minimal experience working with combat arms or the active component. Um, my career has been contained in somewhat of a vacuum. And while I'm very yeah. familiar with my signal profession, I really wanted to learn more about how the other branches of the Army contributed to the fight. And this has just been an excellent way to do that. Um, I'm so impressed by my peers. They're just amazing what they're doing every day, and their profession is amazing. And it really gave me a better understanding of how the Army would employ as a whole uh, to win today's fights.
0: Yeah, that's great, Matt. How about you? What was your experience here
1: like? Yeah, so my uh, my experience was really, and the re, kind of the reason I joined the Strategic Land Power IRP was to really understand how the army is going to employ large scale combat operations, you know, multi-domain operations, LISCO, these all things have been brewing, but the employment of how we're actually going to fight the next fight was kind of my trigger point to why. And then once we got in similarly, like we have field artillerymen, national guard reservists, kind of the, the nuanced conversations that we had, um, of the different elements associated with, how to effectively employ land power, kind of shape this part. Kind of funneled in to the air missile defense piece, just based being an air defense officer, uh, but really how the the synergy associated with the conversation that we had in class is one of the key things that I took away.
0: Outstanding. And Lily, how about you, your experience in the IRP and at the War College broadly?
3: Uh, so, so I think the IRP, when we first got here, I didn't really know what to expect, but I liked the concept of how the, this group research project enabled me to, you know, develop additional relationships with my peers, um, and instructors outside of my basic seminar, um, who, in, who share like a common passion, I guess, to address some of the concerns that were posed to the group by our senior leaders, uh, related to land power, and then to be able to, to focus on a research uh, to focus my research on something that could then be shared at a, at a symposium of uh, senior leaders. I thought that was really important for me to to have something that's kind of all tied together and nested. And I, I really learned, like Jennifer said, I've learned a lot from my peers uh, and our faculty, uh, how it's related into the war college curriculum uh, per your question. Uh, I, I think it nested very well, actually. Most of our courses were focused on things that we discussed uh, during strategic land power uh, classes, but we went into further depth. And it was really a great experience getting to to hear from the experts and course authors uh their take on different uh, uh you know different scenarios, be able to ask them specific questions related to our research that we were doing. And I found that that really as I as I went along and, and did my research, it fit into every course that, that we, uh, that we did here at the War College. We talked about national security strategy and integrated deterrence, um, you know, to, to theories of, of war and strategy, theory of victory um, and and, uh, strategic leadership, the importance of uh, leaders effectively communicating and managing risk, Uh, even defense management talking about our strategic choices and, uh, you know, having to balance modernization uh, force structure and readiness. And then of course, um, in our MSC class, how we, how do we integrate all of this into campaigning, um, and war planning in, in case we do go to conflict in the future. So, so I think it it was one of the most beneficial parts of my, uh, army war college experience. And and I'm really glad I did it and I, I would do it again, uh, if I were to come back
0: outstanding that's the way we we do want people after they finish their year at the war college to think that it was uh it was worth doing and that they might have to they might do it again even though they might not want to read i don't know Clausewitz again i guess that's that's a that's a uh, an acquired taste uh but thank you all three of you thank you jennifer hunt matt inglis and lily woodington for offering your uh presentations on your irp good luck in the symposium good luck with the last uh Uh, weeks of your time here at the war college and good luck in your future assignments. Thank you for your service. And uh, uh, this was, uh, this was great. So thanks so much for joining us today on a better piece. All right. Thank you, Ron. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this program and all the programs, Uh, send us your suggestions for future programs. We're always interested in hearing from you. Please take a moment to subscribe to a better piece on your podcatcher of choice, because after all, Who wouldn't want to be better prepared by being subscribed to a better piece? And after you have subscribed to a better piece, then you should rate and review this podcast on your podcatcher of choice, because that's how more people can find out about it. So we can spread the word. We're always interested in widening the community for conversations like this one. And even though this conversation is over, we thank you and we welcome you to the next one. And so until next time from the war room, I'm Ron Granary.